1: Welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Today, I'm hosting Alan Klein. He's the author of Learning to Laugh When You Feel Like Crying, Embracing Life After Loss. Alan, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe.
2: Glad to be here.
1: Glad to have you. I would like to ask you, um, when we've had a big loss in our life, maybe even a small loss, but a, a loss that is important to us, it can be a milestone. In fact, you talk about milestones in your book. But a milestone is just a marker. There's something beyond that, isn't there? Can you say something about that?
2: Well, I believe when we have a loss in our lives that it's there for a purpose, that we can learn from it, that we can grow from it, that we can see life as being more precious. I mean, it teaches us that that we can start to do things that maybe we've been putting off for years or haven't done. So in that way, it's a milestone, not only because we've maybe lost a loved one or a friend, and they're no longer in our life, but it could be a new life for us. And it is a new life, because that segment is no longer in our life. And so it's a chance for us now to grow and expand and develop and maybe be more conscious and more appreciative of what we do have in our life rather than what we lost.
1: But Alan, we might not feel like that right away. It it may take some time. There may be a grieving process before we can feel the gift of the loss.
2: Or we may never see that gift. And I think that's a tragedy for me because then I think two lives are lost, that the person who died and the person who's still living but not fully. And so that's why in the Learning to Laugh When You Feel Like Crying book, I hope I, hope I can encourage people to go from the loss to start to living again and then finally to laughing and enjoying life.
1: You have done something called therapeutic laughter what is therapeutic
2: Therapeutic humor. Oh, humor. Yeah, but you're right about therapeutic laughter. There's whole um, organizations now who are doing nothing but <laughs> laughing. Just laughing.
1: Now, when you did that, I had to, I <laughs> broke into a smile and I laughed I too. noticed that. I did so that. So you see. I couldn't help myself. Because
2: the whole notion, I think, before this like laughter yoga movement, which started in India, but the whole notion was that you needed to have something funny to laugh about. And now they're saying you don't, that you can just laugh and that your body is, you're getting certainly the same fresh air in your lungs and so it's still as healing as regular laughter. And it's contagious, you know, that you started... Like
1: yawning, it's very contagious. Exactly. I think people have done experiments like in subway cars. Ah. And and And
2: people yawn? Or no, people people starting to laugh. Uh
1: And pretty soon somebody else will laugh and pretty soon the whole car is...
2: Just laughing. Yeah, yeah. So it's. It makes
1: um, me smile just to think yeah. about it.
2: Now that's the laughter yoga, and I'm a, actually a licensed a laughter leader. I've taken the whole workshop, and I focus a little bit more on humor, which is seeing the, something funny, helping people see something funny. So I help people see maybe not even something funny, but something positive in the loss. And so maybe that will lead so to So will laughter. people
1: come to you for for help with that or how Well, I do it, it through my hurt?
2: books, through my writing, through my articles in various magazines and also in my workshops. I do a lot. I used to do a lot of workshops, now I do mostly keynote speeches. And I'm really in those situations, if it's hospice, I do a lot of hospice work showing the caregivers, the professional caregivers how to lighten up because it's such a stressful job. Yes. So, or if it's a business, how to take stress and lighten up about the stress. Because some of that's lost too, that uh, their fellow employees are being fired. You know, they have to take a decrease in salary. They're not getting the raise. They have to do more work with less uh, equipment. So that's all kind of a loss. And so I show them how to lighten up.
1: There are lots of losses in our lives, small ones, big ones. You've just kind of mentioned that we might have lost our keys. You know, there are all sorts of things. But don't you feel like these are all, like,
2: opportunities for us to practice for the bigger losses and how we react to those? I'm laughing because years ago, my first writing was published in Prevention Magazine, and it was called, Did You Die Today?, and it was all about the little losses that we go through and how it may be preparation for the big loss for us when we're near the end of our life. And so it's funny that you mentioned that because I do believe that each loss is, is meant to teach us a lesson now that we don't always get the lesson and it may take us lots of lessons. You know, I realize as human beings, we're kind of an odd, um, an, odd, an odd species. Because I noticed my dog, I have an eight-month-old puppy, but it learns things pretty quickly. You know, it learns where the food is. It learns to sit when it's getting a treat. But human beings, when things are going well, we kind of just go along. We don't learn until something negative happens. And then it's like we get someone <laughs> hits us over the head and we go, oh, yeah, you know, and you, you get it.
1: Right. It's like uh, our spiritual practice we don't really know how well we're doing when we live in a cave. It's right. not till we get out in the marketplace and rub shoulders with life do we know if it's really taking right. I mean, if
2: you're sitting and meditating every day in a monastery and you know the food's brought to you twice a day, or whatever, what kind of obstacles getting your way? Not much. Maybe sitting and meditating might be difficult, but other than that. Nothing else comes as an obstacle in your way or a challenge. So, in the
1: grieving process, when we have had a loss in our life, whether it's a loss of a pet or a loved one, a job, divorce, whatever it is. Um, Everyone is unique in that grieving process you, you mention in your book, and that it's not important for us to compare ourselves with someone else. Right, you're
2: not competing for like the gold medal of grieving, <laughs> you know, um, you do it in your way. You'll have up days, In my own experience, and my wife dying at 34, I know I had up days and I had down days, and some days were better than others, and um I never knew. I mean, I had a business downtown San Francisco. I got off the bus and had to walk past the new Bank of America building in San Francisco. And every day for two weeks, I'd come to that building and I would cry. And I had no idea why this was happening. It was part of my grief process. It had nothing to do with my wife and Bank of America building. I don't know if it was because it was tall and big and dark. You know, the stone is very dark. I don't know what it was. And that passed. And that's another thing about loss and grieving. I think sometimes when things aren't going well in my life, I go, this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. You know, and it usually does. And that's a
1: cliche, but it also is true that things always do move on and they do change like seasons.
2: Like seasons, like nature. Always, Everything's changing. Our bodies, our thought patterns. Everything, and part of the process is that we're not here forever.
1: Going back to what you were saying about crying when you pass the Bank of America, just when we think we're over our grief, there might be something. We think, okay, that's behind us now. We are finished with that. We're on with our life. Some piece of music comes on or somebody calls. Who knows what the trigger is suddenly the tears start flowing again. Right, right. What can you say about it? Well,
2: I remember my wife and I, when we lived in New York City, went to see Funny Girl and Barbra Streisand singing People. So that became our song. The problem was, when we went to see the show, we had very far, like, left seats and she goes to the side of the stage to the left and we could not see her sing the song so even though it was like our song it almost you know became funny and tearful at the time when i think of that song or hear that song i do get a little yes, teary I can see. but i also start chuckling because of the memories i have of it
1: so there it is both and the the combination of the laughter and tears they're very close, aren't they?
2: Very close. And, and the thing about laughter and loss, though, is I think in our society, we push it away. We, you know, we don't want that. And yet in other societies, like the Irish wake, for example, a true Irish wake, the more boisterous and the more people celebrated and got drunk and laughed and carried on, the more that person was revered. Mm-hmm. So uh, there is a direct relation in, in that culture with being boisterous, laughing a lot, joking around, kidding around when someone has died.
1: Right. And then there's the oh Puritan way where everything is somber and
2: you'd speak in hushed tones and right.
1: But right. I somehow and, I gravitate for the other. I think that it's yeah, much more yeah. enlivened.
2: I know when I die, I've told many people uh, I probably should put it in my will, but I. I would like everyone to have bubbles oh, and blow right. bubbles because um, they're such precious. For me, they're like human beings. Each bubble is slightly different, you know, size-wise, color-wise. And then they're beautiful to look at, just like people. And then at some point they burst, they're gone, you've enjoyed it, and it's over.
1: Right. That's so, a beautiful analogy. I,
2: I don't know. I see losses that way, like a beautiful bubble.
1: It may be hard for some of us, when we're in a grieving process, to accept help from others. What would you say about opening ourselves up to being with others when well, we're grieving? Well, just know
2: that there is support. There are support teams, there are friends around, relatives. Uh, And if you don't have many of those, my mother-in-law died last year. She was almost 100. Nearly all her friends, you know, are gone. But she did have family, you know. But then there's groups. There's support groups. There's hospice groups. I don't know. There's almost 2,500 hospices, I think, now. And they all offer a support group. So there is help. It's so hard to do things alone, you know, and particularly laughter, that when you're with other people, you laugh. And I know many support groups, people have said they've gone to for grief and it turns into this laugh fest, you know, because they're telling these stories and some of them are funny that happened and, and people are laughing and crying. And so it's very cathartic to do both. So when you're with a group like that and
1: someone comes out with a story, you see that, oh, there's permission that you have some of your own stories right. that you can add to it. Right. If you're home alone, that's not going to happen. Right, and
2: it happen. probably you go down more in depression and, you know, uh, further down. Because one of the things about laughter, it's easier with other people. It's why on TV they have those laugh tracks. I mean, I think they use it too much. But when you hear the laughter, you start laughing.
1: Right. I particularly do not like the laugh tracks. I (laughs) I don't either. But being with live people, being with people one-on-one that are actually there, that is infectious.
2: You know, you talk about being with people to laugh. When I do a keynote speech, if there's a room, say 500 chairs, and there's only 200 people sitting in it, there's usually less laughter. But when they're really crowded, if there's like 500 or 499 people and they're right next to each other, there's a lot more laughter. Because when we hear other people or we sometimes look at other people, they're laughing, we laugh. You know, we kind of acknowledge that that was funny. Laughter is very bonding. And so if you've lost someone, you can't do it alone. You need to get around other people for support and for the laughter.
1: Is there anything else that you want to leave us with about how to recover from a major loss in our life?
2: Well, I think don't compare your loss to someone else. Don't be hard on yourself. Don't go if-onlys, you know. You can't go backwards. And what are you going to do from this loss? How are you going to carry this person's spirit on in the world? What have they taught you? And just um, carry on, you know. (laughs)
1: I think you have an aunt or someone who died in New York City. America. Oh, my cousin. Oh, was it your cousin? Yes, oh. my
2: cousin Bernice. And it's yes. the reason I wrote Learning to Laugh When You Feel Like Crying, because she had a great spirit. She died suddenly of leukemia a couple of years ago. And I went back to the library to look at books about grief. And there were these, you know, two, three hundred pages telling me about all the difficulty I'm going to be having and the... All the stuff I've got to go through. And I didn't want that. I wanted a book that would, like, be inspirational, maybe hold someone's hand. A book that maybe was like a hug to someone who was grieving. And so I just started to lack my thoughts and wrote Learning to Laugh When You Feel Like Crying. But Bernice's spirit is in this book. And one of the things I remember about her spirit, when I was very young, they only had LaGuardia Airport and not Kennedy. And it was the days when you'd go out, there'd be an observation deck, and you could wave to the person sitting on the plane as, you know, the propellers would spin. And I was young, and she was one of the first people I knew that flew anywhere, and she went everywhere in the world. And I said to her, aren't you afraid the plane would crash? And she said, no, Alan, I'm not afraid, but if it did, I would want it to crash, when I returned from my vacation, so I didn't miss my vacation. <laughs> and, and that's Alan, the kind of spirit living I write about in Learning to Laugh.
1: And you end the book with a year after her death is when they uncover her gravestone, and right. it's a very the, sweet story. Right,
2: Jewish tradition, it's called The Unveiling, and you all gather and you say prayers, and it's like the last time that you say goodbye to the person. And it was in New Jersey. It was a terribly cold, wintry day, and there was a lot of wind. And uh, the rabbi saying the blessing, we're all saying stuff, and it's going on way too long. And all of a sudden, this wind came and like started almost blew this cloth right, you know, up. And we all turned to each other and like just by a look went. It's burning, telling us we've grieved enough. You know, she's gone. We still have her spirit. Get on
1: with Get your Get on with it. Oh, Alan, thank you so much for sharing these delightful stories with us today. Thank you. I've been here with Alan Klein. He's the author of Learning to Laugh When You Feel Like Crying, Embracing Life After Loss. And if you'd like to be in touch with him and learn more about his work, you can go to his website, alanklein.com and that's A L L E N K L E I N. or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Thank you so much for joining us at the New Dimensions Cafe, and I encourage you to please join us again.
0: You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a 1,000 hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org.